so we talked a little bit yesterday about the difference between seeing and hearing the advantages of both. And I was reminded that in the Babylonian Talmud and the Jerusalem Talmud, we have these expressions where the Talmud is discussing a matter and will will want to be, be citing a proof or, or bring evidence for some for one side of an argument. And the way that the Jerusalem Talmud uh, describes that, it says, come and see. Ta chazi, come and see. And in the Babylonian Talmud, which is the Talmud, I mean, people typically quote Talmud, they're talking about the Babylonian Talmud, which, um, you know, that, that's the Gemara. We're learning Gemara. They're talking about Babylonian Talmud. Um, so in the Babylonian Talmud, when we'll, we'll do that very same thing of saying, you know, come, let us bring a proof from somewhere else. We'll say, Ta Shema, come and hear. And so it's not a mistake, obviously, where the Jerusalem Talmud written in Israel, it says, Ta Chazi, come and see. And the Babylonian Talmud, written in the diaspora outside the land of Israel, says, come and hear. And the reason for that is, as we explained yesterday, is that in the land of Israel, you have this greater ability to apprehend, to grasp, to perceive divinity and the Torah, the truths of the Torah, the ideas of the Torah. And so you could say, come and see. You're going to see this idea. Whereas in the, in the Babylonian Talmud, which reflects the reality outside, distant, in a way, from God, you have this expression of Tashima, come and hear. And in general, the Babylonian Talmud, the methodology is one of much greater struggle. You can go through pages, a few pages of, of discussion trying to get to a point and going down all the false paths and saying, oh, that door wasn't right, and that door wasn't right, process of elimination, you come to the, to the right conclusion. Whereas in the Jerusalem Talmud, it's more straightforward and just gets to the point and says, this is what it is. And as we explained yesterday, there's the advantage to the hearing method, to the Tashima method, because through that struggle, actually going through a deeper journey within yourself and bringing more of yourself with, with you to be, to be present. So just wanted to share that in connection with what we, we talked about yesterday. Let us continue. Verse 26. Moshe continues his remarks to the Jewish people. God became angry at me because of you. And interesting, Rashi, uh, Moshe mentions this a few times. And uh, our research department is on this to figure out why does Moshe repeat this several times? That is because of the Jewish people that Moshe was punished and wasn't been able to uh, wasn't able to go into the land of Israel. So God gets angry at me, and Rashi says, "Very angry." Eli did not listen to me, and God said to me, "Rav Lach, it's enough for you. Do not speak to me anymore about this matter." Now we learned yesterday that Moshe was going on and on five hundred and fifteen prayers. So God was pretty patient, actually. But we do see that eventually, even though Moshe has a lot of chutzpah. Holy chutzpah, when he talks to God, we learned that, you know, his first encounter with God at Mount Sinai when he was a shepherd working for his father-in-law, um, he, he argued with God for seven days. So he had a lot of holy chutzpah, but at one point at the, at the end of this meeting with God of the seven days, finally God uh, metaphorically puts his foot down 
and Moshe realizes, you know, that's it. He's going to go to, to Egypt and, and represent God. So here too, Moshe tries and tries, but eventually God says, okay, that's it. And that's what's happening in this verse, verse 26. And Rashi explains, and he says that if you keep praying, it doesn't look good. It's not good optics. In the words of Rashi, people should not say, how hard is the master or how harsh is the master God and how obstinate and pressing is the disciple, i.e. Moses, that's from the, from the Talmud. That's one explanation that Rashi gives. For Ravloch, it's enough because it just doesn't look good. This is not going to happen. And having you keep asking for it and me saying no doesn't look good for me. It doesn't look good for you. But then Rashi gives a deeper explanation, beautiful explanation. He says, Ravloch is referring to a future time. And he says, Ravlach, there is much more than this that is reserved for you. Rav Tuf there is much goodness that is hidden for you, reward for you that you're going to receive that is even greater than you're entering the land of Israel. So the first explanation, Ravlach is, is uh, stern. It says, okay, that's it, enough. But inside of that uh, kind of stern response that God gives to Moshe, which seems like a turning away is actually inside. If you dig and you can wait till the second interpretation of Rashi, then you get to something beautiful, which is in fact, Ravloch. There is great reward for you, even greater than this beautiful idea. Verse 27, now God tells him, you wanted to see the land. Now, the way Moshe had expressed it, he said, I want to see the land, but he meant, I want to go into the land and see it. I don't want to do a virtual tour on Zoom. I want to go. They won't let me in. So God says to him, you're not going to be able to see it from inside, but you are going to get a visual of the land of Israel. Go up to the peak. Pisgah. Pisgah is the peak, the top of the hill. Lift up your eyes. In all four directions. And see with your eyes. But you're not going to, to pass not going to cross this Jordan. Rashi tells us that Moshe had not spoken of the entire land of Israel. He spoke about seeing the good mountain, which we said is Jerusalem and the Lebanon, the Beit HaMikdash. But God says, I'm going to show you the entire land. Verse 28, and command Yehoshua and strengthen him and encourage him because he is the one who's going to take the Jewish people, this, this nation. And he's going to inherit it for them, this land that you are going to see. So it's, it's kind of a, a twofold thing going on over here. You are going to see the land. And that has an impact, not just on you, but on the Jewish people. And secondly, but it's actually going to be Yehoshua, who is going to be the one to take the Jewish people into the land that you will see. <sighs> Rashi says something very beautiful over here. He says, when, when the verse, when God says he will cross over before his people, that is very specific. When he, that, it, that, it ha, that Yeshua has to go in front of the people. And Rashi says, if he will cross ahead of the people, they will inherit the land. But if not, if Yeshua hangs out in the back and says, you guys go on ahead, 
then lo yinchalu, they will not be in, in, able to inherit the land. And Rashi cites from Joshua, the book of Joshua, that the Jews ran into trouble at one point in a place called Ai, A-I. And God tells him, this is because you have not led them in the battle. You're standing in your place and sending my children out into battle. You've got to go ahead of them. This is what I told Moshe, your teacher. If you go ahead, if you, if you go ahead, then, then they will succeed. And if not, they will not succeed. Now, verse 29 just sounds like an entry to a travelogue. God forbid to even speak like that of a, of a verse, but let's read it. It says, we abided in the valley opposite Beth Pa'or and doesn't seem to have any, you know, why is Moshe saying this? There's no, there doesn't seem to be any message. Rashi gives us the message of what Moshe was trying to say. Moshe was saying, what is Beth Pa'or? We know, what do we know about Pa'or? Pa'or was an idol. It was a it was a it was a type of worship, Baal Pa'or. And Rashi is saying Rashi tells us that what Moshe is saying here is that that at that that we became uh, you, the Jewish people, you connected yourself, you worshiped this idol, idolatry of Pa'or. And nevertheless, the next verse says, Atta Yisrael, now O Israel, listen to the statutes. Everything is forgiven to you. You worshiped idols, and yet you keep going. You're you're the Jewish people, you've got the laws. But what happened to me, I did not merit to be forgiven for my mistakes. So what is, what is, um, what happens next? Verse one, Vata Yisrael, now Israel, Shema El listen to the statutes. And this is what I mentioned yesterday, this idea that Moshe is saying um, that you're, you're relating to God and to the Torah and at the level of Shema, of listening versus the seeing that Moshe experienced to the ordinances that I that I am teaching you to do in order that you will live, you will go, you will come and you will inherit the land that God, the God of your forefathers is giving to you. Now here, verse two, we have a very important principle in Torah, which is there are 613 commandments. You're not allowed to add to them and you're not allowed to take away. So let's look at it. Do not add on the matter that I am commanding you today. Do not diminish any of it to keep the mitzvahs of the Lord your God which I command you now the simple meaning of this is at least the way I would read it and I'm guessing there are commentators that read it that's the way as well is we have 630 commandments don't say well we're going to add a, four, a 614th or we're going to say this commandment is uh, out of fashion it's obsolete we're going to get rid of it God forbid if it's something is divine, here's a very, actually a very interesting idea. This is, um, you know, why is this why is this uh, so important? And I think I believe it's a principle, one of the principles of the Torah. Why can't we say, well, times change and the mitzvahs change? Why can't the mitzvah become obsolete? God forbid. Why can't we add a mitzvah? And the answer is, if you go into the depths of what a mitzvah is, there's, well, no, there's two ways of looking at what is a mitzvah. One way of looking at it and this is incorrect, or, or it's a, it's a, it doesn't get the full picture, is that the mitzvahs are given to us as a means for us to live a, a uh, you know, moral, ethical, refined life in this world. Now, so what comes first? The world comes first, we come first, and then the Torah comes second as addressing the needs of, of people and how to behave in this world in the most optimal manner. If you look at it that way, then the idea that a, a mitzvah would become obsolete God forbid, or that you would need to add a mitzvah, 
that, that idea is not not so far fetched because you know times change, people change, so the needs of the people change, so the, the, Torah, the Torah change. But in fact, the Torah and the mitzvahs is a lot deeper than that. What comes first? The Torah comes first. The Torah comes from God. In other words, the Torah is an expression of God. It is, it, in, in the Midrash, talks about the Torah as and metaphor of the Torah as the God's daughter. The Maral talks about that, and he says, just as a child um, emanates from a parent, it's actually the 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 product of the parent. So the Torah, the Torah is a product of God. What does that mean? That means that God puts Himself, His being, His essence into the Torah. That's hinted to in the first word of the Ten Commandments, Anochi, which is an acronym for Ana Nafshi Katavit Yahavit. I, my soul. I wrote and I gave that in the Torah, God gives us himself. So it's, um, it's an autobiography of sorts, right? Somebody can write a book on science, but it's, it's not telling you who they are. But if they write their autobiography, you get a sense of who that person is. Similarly, the Torah, although it doesn't read like an autobiography per se, but what the Ana Nafshi Katavit Yahavit Anochi is saying is, in fact, God is putting himself into the Torah. And the mitzvot, the mitzvot are in the words of the Zohar, they're like God's limbs. And so it's not that the mitzvahs are, are written or, or um, um, designed for us, per se. It works very well for us. But in fact, they are an expression of God. And just as God doesn't change, the mitzvahs don't change. Just because God doesn't change, the Torah doesn't change. And so there's perfection in the mitzvahs. All the mitzvahs that we need are there. Um, I know this raises a lot of questions and we'll probably get to that in Q&A, but um, all the mitzvahs are there. Every mitzvah is eternal. Why? Because God is eternal. So if God is eternal, the mitzvahs that emanate from him are also going to be eternal. And so hence the really fundamental nature of this verse, don't add anything and don't take away because it's not just um, a coincidence that nothing is going to change from the Torah and the Torah is going to remain the same, but it's a fundamental understanding of the nature of mitzvahs, the nature of Torah, that that um, if you have that, you understand that it cannot change. Um, I'll just conclude before we go to Q&A, what Rashi says, Rashi um, reads this differently. And he says, it's obvious, well, I'm, I'm adding this. It's obvious that you can't add a mitzvah. I mean, that's ridiculous. The mitzvahs come from God. How can you add a mitzvah? And you can't take away a mitzvah. Of course you can't. God said to do it. How can you take it away? So Rashi reads it a little differently. And he says that within the mitzvahs, don't mess around with the mitzvahs. So for example, Rashi says, the tefillin that we wear each day, except for Shabbos and Yom Tif, they have four passages in them. Shema Yisrael, Vahayim Shemoa, Kadesh, and Mahayali. What if somebody says, you know what? I want to add a fifth parsha. I love Bereshis. Or I love Vet Hanan. I'm going to throw in a fifth Parsha into my tefillin. Why not? Let's get a bit creative over here. That is what the verse is warning against. Just leave things the way they are. If the Torah, if the, if the Torah says put in four Parshas, let it be four Parshas. Don't add. And uh, don't, don't, there are five, um, I'm sorry, there are four, there are four um, different types that we use on Sukkot. We have the Lulav, the Esrog, the Myrtle, and the uh, Willow. What if somebody says, I would like to add a lavender to my collection? No, can't do that. The chamesh tzitziot, we also have four, fringe, four, four fringes on our garment. What if somebody says, I would like to add a fifth? 
if it's good, here's more of a good thing. No, it's not more of a good thing. Let's keep it the way it's supposed to be, which is the four tzitziot. And the same thing, don't diminish. If somebody says, what if I'll make my tefillin with only three passages? Or I'll do the lulav and the etzrog and the willow. Ah, the willow is kind of depressing. I'm going to leave the willow out. Can't do that either. Three tzitziot, can't do that. So that is Rashi. We will stop there and open it up to questions and comments. Rabbi, talking about the teachings don't become obsolete. Um, could we look at it on two levels? On one level of, of the material world, technology, medicine, and those things change. I mean, we find out new things, science advances. But on this deepest level of values and spirituality and truth, these spiritual truths in relation to God, those don't change. Those are the same forever. Would that be a way of seeing this? I would say a little bit differently. Thank you, Bill. I would say that the laws um, don't change either. The fundamentals of the laws don't change. And with all the advancement that we've seen, we've seen something incredible, which is that the sages of Torah are able to dig into Torah and see what does Torah say about this new technology? You know, for example, Shabbat laws and electricity or uh, medical questions and, and, and medical ethics with new realities. The Torah has, if we dig into the Torah, we're able to find, uh, the greatest sages, of course, are able to find what, would the what does the Torah say about this? It's kind of like math. If you have the principles, you can apply them uh, to any situation. So it's, it's, I think it's more than just the, you know, the spirit and the ethics of it, but actually... Uh, the Torah has within it the information to be able to apply it to any situation with the advancement of technology and um, and medicine. That makes sense. Yes, that's beautiful. Yeah, I, I, I see. I was thinking of Stephen Meyer, a, a theoretical physicist, uh, talks about intelligent design, and as he looks deeper at the physics, at the physics of it, at the uh, microcosmic and macrocosmic level, he finds that there's evidence for things being designed that it didn't happen by chance. So it's leading to the same kind of thing right. that, that's in Genesis, basically. Exactly. Thank you. Hello, you're on mute. Yeah, I've got a question, obviously, you know, it's really, it's actually a question really difficult for me. And about this adding to the Torah and, you know, subtracting from the words of the of Hashem. And I know that, you know, in, uh, in Talmud and Gemara, we have explanation of uh, commandments and all that, of the word. But at which point the, you know, clarification of commandment becomes new commandment? You know, for example, you know, uh, don't cook, you know, the goat, you know, the kidney goat's milk. Once it becomes don't eat meat and uh, milk, you know, this is just an example. Yeah. I, I understand, but it, it's, at which point the explanation comes from the, the, in the addition? Oh, it's an excellent question, Hilo. You no, know, this is this is really you know for me, you know, this I think this, this is the one of the cornerstone of Judaism, basically, you know, the question for our religion. Right. Um, because it's not, you know, it's bothering me, to tell you honestly. You know, this question yeah. is kind of, you know. It's a very good question. And um, and I would say a few things. Number one, 
um, there's two things. <laughs> One is the oral law, the tradition. Actually, we're going to have it in this week's Parsha where it talks about Moshe teaching the people. And Rashi will say that what he taught them was the Torah Shabal Peh. Torah Shabal Peh means the oral law, which is the explanation of the written law. And we have um, several times in the Torah where it's clear that there was some kind of explanation that came along with it. You know, don't do melacha on Shabbat. What is melacha? If you do melacha on Shabbat, there's a death penalty, but it doesn't really explain what it is. What is melacha? What's considered melacha? Um, it says, you know, you shall do the slaughtering as I have commanded you, but nowhere in the Torah we see how it's supposed to be commanded. It says, they shall be as a sign upon your eyes and, uh, and uh, on your arm. I'm sorry, as a, as a sign upon your arm and, and a totafot between your eyes. We don't know what totafot means. And then we have to fill in, you know, all, all much of the Torah that we have, the practices that we have, if you look into the written Torah itself, it's very short on detail. And so um, there was a tradition that was passed orally, which was finally written down in the Mishnah and so forth. But this is a principle of the Torah that the written Torah itself can only be understood uh, based on how it was traditionally explained from Moshe going back all the way to Moshe. And, you know, of course, when people hear about this for the first time, they say, oh, this is like playing telephone. And then when you, when you don't have it written, it's, it's, uh, it's um, you know, when you play telephone, you start off with one thing. And by the end time you get to the end of the room, it's a whole different story. But as I like to say, that unlike the game of telephone, the, the, the oral Torah was not whispered from one kid to another at a birthday party but rather was taught loud and clear by the greatest sages of the time to their greatest students. And the Rambam goes out of his way in his introduction to Mishnah Torah to, to trace the generations from Moshe, from Moses, every generation, Moses to Joshua, not like in Pirkei Avot where it just gives you general, you know, broad strokes, but rather every person who's a go from Moshe to Joshua, etc., going all the way through Samuel and King David and uh, all of the prophets, one after another till we get to Rav Ashi, who is the author of the Talmud, where all of that is finally codified. Well, before that, you have Rabbi Udanasi who codifies the Mishnah. So it's really only 40, 40 people and 40 of our greatest uh, wisest sages who dedicated their lives to the study. So it's not kind of, um, you know, this society that evolved and this happened and that happened. No, we have a very clear picture of how this was passed down from generation to generation. And so when we talk about the example you gave, which is, you know, this idea of not mixing milk and meat. Yes, if you look at the, the, the Torah uh, in isolation from the oral law, it looks like, well, you just can't have a kid in its mother's milk. However, when you look at the tradition, that is the way the Torah's way of saying, don't mix any milk or meat. Now, that's a good example because with milk and meat, we have the law that you're not allowed to mix chicken or fowl with milk. Now, that clearly is not in the Torah and not in the tradition of the Torah. That is not forbidden. That's a different concept, which is the idea that the Torah says you shall make a fence around the Torah. And a fence around the Torah means that you need to, um, you know, don't get too close to the edge. And the sages were very, very wise throughout the generations, and they enacted various things. For example, don't eat fowl and milk, even though the Torah, and they said very clearly, we're not saying that it is prohibited by Torah law. We're saying very clearly that it is permitted by Torah law. So we're not adding 
a new mitzvah, right? Adding a new mitzvah with to say uh, is if a prophet comes up and says, I had a dream last night. <laughs> and in the dream, God told me we have a new mitzvah that every Monday we're going to have a fabrengen. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you could, you could say, let's have a fabrengen every Monday night. And that's a beautiful thing. But if you say, God told me that this is a new 614 mitzvah, then you're in violation of this verse. So when the sages say, don't have fowl and milk, or when they make certain prohibitions on Shabbat that they say are not prohibited by Torah law, but they're offense so that you don't end up transgressing the Shabbat. Or just listening to a podcast yesterday about, you know, our customs about going up onto the Temple Mount these days. You know, there's certain parts you're not allowed to go up to, you're not allowed to walk on. Um, you've got to go to the mikvah beforehand. There's all kinds of complications. And when uh, Israel retrieved um, liberated the Temple Mount in 1967, this question came up among the rabbis in Israel. And they came out pretty unanimously that Jews should not go up to the Temple Mount, even though technically you can figure out ways to go and go to the mikvah and so forth. But they felt this was a dangerous thing to do because not everybody will go to the mikvah. Not everybody will know where to go once you go up there. And it's so serious not to walk on the place of uh, the Holy of Holies or even the Holy that they, 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 um, you know, it, it's sensible to just stay away from it entirely, and we have that in often in, in Jewish law. So there's there's two things again. There's how we understand the Torah, and that's Torah law, but as understood by the tradition. And then there are so those certainly are not additions because they're what the Torah is means to say, just not obvious in the text. And then there are what we what, what are additions rabbinic editions, but though they're not saying that these are that this is a new law that God gave. They're saying very clearly this is a part of the fence of the Torah that God asks us to make a fence, and those are the rabbinic enactments. Um, I was going to say three things, but I think I think two is enough. Thank you very much, yes, you know, you explain it very well, you know, and uh, I think it's good, you know. I think Thank you. Really well. Thank now you. I remember the third thing, that if you look into history, right? If you went back in history and you said, when you were there, when the sages said, don't mix uh, milk with fowl, and you'd said, well, come on, rabbis, you're getting a little carried away over here. I mean, people are not fools. They know meat is meat and fowl is fowl. Or if you found some other enactments that they made and you said, ah, da, da, da. but now in retrospect, with the, with, the, with the benefit of hindsight, we can look back and say, wow, that the Jews that actually followed the rabbinic enactments, they're still around. And okay. those that good. didn't, they assimilated and they're no longer around. And so the, the fact that the Torah is still being observed and that Moshe Rabbeinu Moses can come into our synagogue or come into a Jewish community and will have kosher food and we can converse with him, shalom, manishma, and that he can uh, you know, be called up to the Torah for an aliyah, which he established this idea of, of, of reading Torah regularly. Or, or hear us benching after we eat our bread with the very blessing that he composed, Moses composed, Azanat Olam, Joshua did the next one, and so forth. This is, we can say in retrospect, due to the wisdom and divine inspiration of the sages who were able to make this fence and, and create this miracle that we're still around a couple thousand years later. Thank you, Gershon. Very well said. Thanks. Thank you. Yes, thank you for clarifying that. That's, that's really helpful. My pleasure. Bruce, let's take one more question or comment. 
Well, I'm willing to give up my space to someone else. If someone has something they want to say. Bruce, you're the man. Go for going it. Once, going twice. So, so Bruce. So you talked about the Babylonian and the Jerusalem Talmud and kind of the, the difference, subtle differences between them. And um, I guess at the end, they both get to the same point. Is, is one considered uh, more um, authoritative than the other in any way? That's an excellent question. The law, counterintuitively, as you would think, Jerusalem Talmud, you can't beat that. But counterintuitively, the law always, when, there's a, when there is a contradiction between the Babylonian and Jerusalem Talmud, we try to find a way that, to say that they're not arguing very creatively. The sages of the generations always try to find a way, well, this Babylonian talking about this type of case, but they really agree. But if we have no choice but to say there's a disagreement, then um, the law follows the Babylonian Talmud. But there's a, certainly a lot to talk about. The differences between them is very, very interesting. But yes, it's a great question. The law follows Babylonian Talmud. And uh, maybe have our research department come up with some examples that we could share next time. Thank you. Well, thank you, gentlemen. This has been wonderful. Thank you. I hope you have an amazing day, and we'll look forward to seeing you tomorrow. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.